0: Welcome to this new clinical condition with Dr. Sean Eno of Extreme Footworks. This one is on the plantar fascia, something that a lot of people have dealt with in their lives. Huge problem for most people, uh, but something that really can be confused with a lot of other things. He does a great job explaining the entire thing and really breaking down what else could be going on if it's your plantar fascia. Again, if you're listening to this on audio, he does a good job explaining everything, but does do a lot of visual stuff with a foot model, so please be sure to check out our YouTube or our social media pages in order to get to the video. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Sean Eno, and I'm a certified pedorthist and work with Extreme Footworks uh, Orthotic Lab out in Colorado, and we treat a lot of patients for plantar fasciitis, which is a pain in the bottom of the foot located at the inside or lower portion of the heel. Okay lower medial section of the heel. There's a confusing pathology that occurs called bursitis um, of the inferior calcaneus. There's a bursa sac here. So when we palpate for it, if we palpate the center of the heel and they're sore there, we have to consider that they either have that too, or maybe that's the the problem. When we palpate right against that medial tuberosity and it lights them up, then we know for sure that we have plantar fasciitis, at insertion To calcaneus and this is typically where the classic diagnosis of heel spur occurs and what happens in that area is that the periosteum is pulled away from the bone by the plantar fascia and the plantar fascia then uh, or the body then fills the gap in the periosteum which is like a tissue or a film around the bone so the calcium that actually enters the bone spur does not come out and down and become the problem it is secondary to the inflammation that occurs in that insertion point and is typically not the problem. It's part of of the body's solution to the problem by creating a greater bony surface area for that to attach to. It's also the location where the classic plantar fasciectomy has been performed, which we highly do not recommend having done. The reason being is the function of the plantar fascia is to uh, absorb shock Retain the function of the bottom of the foot so the foot can't fall apart. It also goes into the windless effect when the body goes into toe-off, drawing the foot back up into the supinated position and creating a rigid lever arm out of the foot. One of the biggest things that it doesn't like is if there's a lot of twist in the foot on step. So those of you that are patients out there might not know what a twist in step uh, necessarily is, but. Um, for the student or doctor, basically, when there is a forefoot to rear foot imbalance in alignment, there will always be a twist in the step. And it's like a dandelion root and it just pulls and twists on these insertion points where the weak link in the propulsive chain is because the plantar fascia is the last component, along with a couple other systems we'll talk about briefly, that allows for the body to go up into toe off and to toe off. And so, that force comes down the calf and through the achilles and grabs the achilles above the calcaneus on the um closer um or or superior aspect of the calcaneus and then that's the fascial attachment and it really broadens out and fans out and we can get a lot of achilles tendonitis around the crown of the bottom of the hill so we have to be concerned about where the patient or um uh, person in question being treated for orthotics is having that problem. Treating for plantar fasciitis with orthotics is having that problem because it will impact a little bit um, what we want to do design feature for the orthotic, but it's also good to just have the right diagnosis. Um, The plantar fascia then is the reciprocal force connector here to the calcaneus and lends itself to attachment sites up to the five toes. So the force applied by the calf to, toe the, the, to plantar flex the foot and create a toe off goes right through these attachment sites and they form the weak link in the propulsive kinetic chain here. So that's why we see a lot of insertion point tendonitis for primarily plantar fasciitis, but secondarily Achilles tendinitis at insertion to various aspects of the calcaneus. There's one other little bugger in here that can form and be a misdiagnosis for plantar fasciitis called medial calcaneal neuroma. There is a medial calcaneal nerve that goes through here. And if there is enough pressure applied to it through the right foot type and mechanics, it can cause the nerve sheath to swell in this location and create a nodule that then becomes the offender itself as adjacent tissues are compressed and the nerve is compressed. And that usually, will respond to some myofascial treatments but will also potentially need to be excised in the outpatient surgical process now the last uh main pathology that is confused with plantar fasciitis occurs in the other area in which we experience plantar fasciitis which is through the body the main body of it underneath the arch and it's in that area when we feel the pressure of the the um, elongation of force applied to the plantar fascia becoming too much that we get the uh, inflammation in the body of the plantar fascia. Now, it's uh, right underneath of that, actually above it from the floor up, that the posterior tibial tendon inserts into the navicular and cuneiforms and actually the first and second metatarsal shafts. It's it's a wonderful like palm frond attachment there. And it has so many different places that it can become inflamed that we have to also be sure that posterior tibial tendinitis isn't a diagnosis and it can occur in conjunction with plantar fasciitis because one of the primary causes of plantar fasciitis is too much tension in the gastroxoleus and Achilles complex creating excessive elongation forces on adjacent tissues. So a general rule in the body is where loss of range of motion has occurred, adjacent systems will take up that loss if they can. And if not, then they'll become inflamed at insertion points. So stretching is a huge component for plantar fasciitis. And so we'll dovetail a little bit into stretching. We definitely want to allow for the tibia to translate over the talus effectively. And the longer that happens and further it can go, the more likely the other heel hits the ground before the heel raises on the loaded foot in question. Now in a running uh, uh, gait, that doesn't happen, but walking, it can and does, but it can also be restricted by excessive tension in the posterior compartment, calling what we call, creating what we call early heel rise. Early heel rise puts more of the body's weight through single stance phase, through the ball of the foot, creating greater forces applied to these insertion points for plantar fasciitis and the other pathologies briefly discussed. So, if we can increase ankle dorsiflexion and we can do that by stretching out the posterior compartment, then we can get this to heal. Now, if you can imagine, plantar fasciitis occurs on the bottom of the foot, and we are stepping on man made surfaces every day across that location of that problem. Same thing with the uh, discussion of. Distal insertion point Achilles tendonitis to calcaneus. So that's the same thing. And also the inferior uh, calcaneal bursitis for the bursa there. Those are all impacted by the step on man-made surfaces. So if we have a problem there, then stepping becomes an injury mechanism to the problem. So the last thing is, is we sleep with the foot in a plantar flexed position, allowing all of these systems to become excessively tight at night. And that's why there is the Strasbourg sock, the night splint, and the advice to not go barefoot on man-made surfaces at any time when you have a pathology, including pain in the plantar surface of the foot, like plantar fasciitis. And so we recommend that you realize that you have to stretch this system before bearing weight after any periods of rest, and especially after a night's rest. So that's why the night Blend exists. For those of us that either can't find, don't make the time, or find another reason not to do immediate calf and posterior compartment stretches of the leg, including hamstring, while in bed still, and then place the foot directly into some type of crockish, cushionish, slipperish, uh, Sanuk-type shoe. Those were a couple brand names that work that have a yoga mat material or blown urethane bottom that allows for shock absorption to reduce the shock to those inflamed systems and to allow for that ankle dorsiflexion to occur, then we must stretch the uh, system, uh, posterior compartment system all day long through a door jam stretch. And that is a um, triplanar calf stretch that your, treating clinicians should be able to teach you how to do in the office and take home with you so that you can effectively stretch all day long after you've been watching news at the end of the day etc any periods of rest anytime you feel tight if you get up in the morning and you feel sharp tearing sensations in the bottom of the heel then you have offset a night's worth of healing because we're really only healing this pathology when sleeping and at rest that's why it's such a chronic, long-lived problem. Now, some questions are, how about the guy that's had it for a year and a half, and then all of a sudden it goes away? Well, there's been proof that this can be an inflammatory response that eventually burns itself out. I.e., the body just, there's a elongation, it adjusts, it adds the spur, and at some point, everything stretches out which is good for the relief of the plantar fasciitis, but it's bad for the foot and the leg because it means everything has structurally digressed, so to speak, into a elongated stretch week, we would call it, scenario. So even if a person has had relief of their symptoms but has a history of plantar fasciitis, then they need to consider the orthotic being one that holds up the arch through a full contact feature, has a sufficient padding in the heel, and that there is stability in shoe and orthotic front to back, that's this way, back to front. So we can't have shoes or gait that allows for excessive supination or pronation because those then torque the plantar fascia through the step and cause that insertion point to not have the strength to put up with the forces and tear in that location and that tearing is your classic plantar fasciitis, okay? That stretching and subsequent inflammation of the body of the plantar fascia is the typical arch-derived plantar fascia. And folks, uh, amazingly enough, folks that start off in life with a more rigid foot, have a tendency to be poorer shock absorbers and also develop plantar fasciitis in the body of the arch more typically than people with more mobile or flexible feet okay there are no hard and fast rules but there are some generalities those were a couple of them there cool uh quick question here so um, you mentioned the Strasbourg sock or the night splint uh is that something that you would recommend to somebody uh that it's helpful for them to kind of get through that acute phase or you, do you suggest just yes it? i do you know i i suggest anything that the the rest ice compression elevation so you start your day off you, you have to maybe use a pillow in the bed okay to make sure enough blood's draining out of your foot at night so you have a little elevation under your ankles or even under your knee and ankle and then consider compression socks during your upright time all right to prevent pooling of the blood in the lower extremities during sitting at work and walking um, because there's a pedal pump in the back of the calf that helps with return blood flow through the vascular system and periods of rest combined with uh, aggressive use of those muscles, overuse in a bad biomechanical scenario, or body demanding blood because of inflammation, right, damage, then there's not that assistance in the return venous flow. And it's really that swelling that creates the evening afternoon plantar fasciitis. And it's the tearing in the morning from having a really tight posterior compartment that creates the morning. So in the morning, you're looking to get stretched out and get your feet under you and have some short strides and loosen things up before you feel that tearing sensation. If you can get past that, you're good. And then you stretch all day long and you try to reduce that swelling and the impact of walking all day long through your orthotic management, your icing, and your elevation at periods of rest. And if you are not a good stretcher, all right? We have to admit some people just won't do their stretches, right? That's where the night splint and the, and the uh, Strasbourg sock come into play because it's going to hold your foot in a dorsiflected ankle position at night keeping those systems stretch out enough to handle your first steps without re-tearing it. And so you're really trying to build one night on another. And so for the really responsible patient, they might not need that. And for the pretty irresponsible patient with chronic heel pain, they might consider that that's who they are and they better go get that because it's definitely going to help them. Sure. So well, then uh, you mentioned orthotics, obviously that's your your bread and butter is is anybody that has plantar fasciitis a candidate for orthotics or would you suggest yeah. adding a stretching? And, or, yeah. That? And a good way to weed out whether it's just the padding that comes from it or whether the, orth, whether the orthotic is required is to have someone like yourself or myself that can put an eye on the gate and see if there is really something else contributing to it biomechanically. Otherwise, there are things off the shelf that can be attempted to be used to see if you get a result. Now, I've seen so many cases of plantar fasciitis that have said, you know, I tried the Dr. Scholl's and I tried the heel silicon gel pads my doctor gave me and they made it a little bit better, but they didn't make it go away. And it's just been or still been a regular pain in my life. So my point is, is I think by the time you have a real case of plantar fasciitis, if you don't change some of the things you do, right? Because basically, we're going to have to tell that patient, there's something about your function lending itself to chronic plantar fasciitis. And we usually do find it when we do a biomechanical screening on them. And then maybe they got the wrong shoes, they need a little wrong uh, shoe advice. And they definitely haven't been stretching as they've been middle aging and and further. And so if they don't change those things, they might not get rid of it. There's no prophylaxis prophylactic. And even though NSAIDs and other anti-inflammatories help and can be advised for a little bit of time to get over the hump, they're also bad for you. And we don't want anyone taking those if they don't have to. And so the idea is that they're going to have to change something and that change may or may not involve posting the foot with a custom true fit orthotic. And that is whereby when they, if you look at it, derive it empirically, if they do the stretches and have the right shoes and the problem still doesn't go away, they probably need orthotics, and they don't need a doctor to tell them that. Now, if they get the, the, do the stretches, and they and they do all the RICE, ice, I, R-I-C-E for breast rice, ice compression elevation, and they don't get results, or do get results, then they probably just need to keep that up to some degree maintenance-wise. And unless they have other problems, we don't know that they definitely would benefit from a custom foot orthotic. I always hold to the theory that we were never meant to stand and walk on man-made surfaces and that if any other part of our body had to get slammed by the rest of our body into a surface like the ground, it too would be chronically hurting. That's the recognition that we've built a fairly unhealthy environment for the body and the feet around us, and we have to take up mitigation and management strategies to work around those stresses. One of the things lost is the variation of position of foot. So I always recommend to people to wear some different shoes if they can throughout the day and employ some flip-flops even because flip-flops require you to use the primary plantar flexors of the foot, which can only strengthen the bottom of the foot. So one other corollary to plantar fasciitis that I think has been shown to be true is that it occurs secondary to the plantar uh, plantar flexors of the bottom of the foot becoming weak and losing their tone and no longer assisting the plantar fascia in its job of holding the bottom of the foot together. So a guy like Baryshnikov, who's a dancer, doesn't have plantar fasciitis because he's popping around on these wood floors because he's got the strongest plantar flexors we've ever seen out of somebody on man-made surfaces. But unfortunately, being a child on man-made surfaces and wearing shoes both break down the bottom of the foot, which is also a huge contributor. So in your office and in many other physicians' offices, the physical therapy and the um, DNS and the other protocols for strengthening the intrinsics of the foot, which include the plantar flexors are very important and some footwear can promote that and some footwear can break it down. Awesome. So variation in footwear promotes strengthening of the foot intrinsics. Perfect. It's uh, great, great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Uh, if you have any questions, reach out to Sean directly at extreme footworks. Otherwise we're here at clinically press. We'd be happy to get you in touch or do another insight here. So Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate day. it.